Here's a trivia question. Who appeared in Twin Peaks, Romancing the Stone, Zoolander, Bull Durham, and Duck Dynasty? The answer? No, not Kevin Bacon. The real answer? The Ford Bronco. The little boxy 4x4 with just enough comfort and no small amount of style has cruised across the screen more than a thousand times. We have some of the, the PR stills from movie studios. That's Ted Ryan. He's Ford's archivist. He's the keeper of the treasures, the emperor of the attic. So we make vehicles and we sell them to people. And then what happens to those vehicles? How does it show up? One person they sold a Bronco to was actually the most famous Bronco in the whole country. That started with a dealer we worked with out in Denver. And um, we did a lot of truck business with that guy. That's Don Walduck, founder of Walduck Crafts. He retrofits or restyles trucks and vans, sort of a pimp my ride for off-road trucks. He had called me because he was a big fan of the Denver Broncos and John Elway. John Elway was the quarterback of the Denver Broncos, one of the greatest of all time. And in 89, he had just signed his big contract and he wanted to buy a new car, a new Bronco. The dealer called Don to see if they could do something special for him and then spin it into a limited edition run. Our plan was to build a lot of these. You know, we were trying to sell 20, 50, 75. It was a piece of art. Well, it was all white on the outside, and we painted some blue stripes to match the Denver colors, along with some piping on it to match the orange. So that looked really cool. We had John Elway edition on the side, and then we went into the interior and uh, reupholstered the seats, front and rear, carpeted the floor, and a few of them, we even put some low center console TVs back then, like with five-inch screens. It was a pretty high-end piece back in those days. A Bronco built for a Bronco. When I talked to John Elway, he was just very congenial, very appreciative and excited and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I remember him thinking, hey, I hope you sell a bunch of them. A bunch? Well, not really. We built seven of them, and that's as far as that got. It's not a big number, but it is poetic. After all, seven is Elway's number. Elway wasn't the only celebrity that rolled around in a Bronco, of course. And here is a picture of Pope John Paul II, which at appears Yankee to be Stadium. at Yankee Stadium, and he's driven out in what appears to be the Pope Mobile. But we know that the Pope Mobile is an Italian car, y'all. This car is a Bronco. So Ford customized three different Broncos in 1979 in advance of the papal visit. Uh, issued a little press release, but it said the vehicle opened in the rear so that the Pope may stand and greet his friends and followers. We'll have uh, exterior finish done in Wimbledon white and interior decor completed in Wedgwood blue. Uh, Ford created them and turned over three to the Secret Service, which used them during Pope John Paul's visit in October of 1979. So, so, this, so, so this is probably, this is the, this is the first white Bronco in uh, popular culture. <laughs> first, first white Bronco and uh, first, first famous white Bronco in yeah, pop first. culture history. This was the first famous white Bronco. 
but not the last. Welcome to Bring Back Bronco, the untold story. I'm Sinari Glenton. The Bronco is a surprisingly historic vehicle. From movies to athletes to, yeah, the Pope himself, it pops up in some pretty unexpected places. But it was always under siege. There was the gas crisis, new safety regulations, competition from the other automakers, and even complacency within Ford. But somehow it kept trucking through the 70s. In the 80s and 90s, however, the obstacles getting thrown in the Bronco's path took a much more serious tone, including an unlikely appearance in the most watched police chase in this country's history. This is Chapter 3, Going Downhill. Graduated high school one day, went to work on the uh, assembly line the next day. That's Jeff Trapp. I worked at Ford Wixon plant where they made the Link Continentals and Marks. Worked there two years, two and a half years or so. And then uh, once that recession hit, once they cut the second shift, that was it. I was gone from there. It was July 1981. One day, Jeff and his brother, also unemployed, went hunting. They saw a pair of Broncos for sale at the side of the road. They were both in really rough shape, but the Trap brothers had an idea. They haggled with the owner for a while, but eventually settled on a price to buy them both. So me and my brother took the two and made one good vehicle, and we had extra parts left. I started selling them, bought another truck, kept going from there. One by one, they would buy old Broncos, strip them down, and sell the parts. That's where the term Bronco Graveyard came from. Uh, our company slogan, I had on my business card, it says, wanted, dead or alive, you know, we buy Broncos. Started getting a lot of calls, and next thing I know, my parents' backyard is filled up, and I have to move into a facility somewhere. Now, this is pre-internet, remember? So Jeff had to get creative with his marketing. Back then, I, I used to we used to mud race, and we used the Bronco as uh, had to build the Bronco up for mud racing, and uh, got going from there. Mud racing, if you're not familiar, is a Midwestern thing. Although I'm sure there's some form of it everywhere. You take a stretch of field or ditch, flood it until it's about three feet deep with mud. And then you race through it. Whoever can go the furthest without bogging down wins. Jeff used a bright yellow Bronco. Tough to say what year it was because he's cannibalized parts from so many vehicles to make it mud-worthy. But I'd say early 70s, he had Bronco Graveyard written on the side. And at every event, he would meet new customers. We used to hand cards out, go through the parking lot, and I'd put them on all the Broncos there. Uh, that's how it basically got started. It was uh, most people that, just local people, general area, lower Michigan here, uh, people that looking to upgrade the Broncos. Eventually, word spread nationally. He started doing mail order sales and then moved on to the internet. Today, he has a 30,000 square foot warehouse full of Bronco parts, new and used. And every serious Bronco owner in the country has his business card in the glove box. 
Jeff is just one example of something called Bronco Nation, people all around the country that own Broncos. They go to show and shines and hold off-road driving parties. They are the curators of Bronco culture. Bronco culture? Yeah, that's a thing. The 1978 and 79 models were really big sellers. That's the Bronco I was riding in, going to roller rinks around Chicago. That large and powerful redesigned version was Ford's most successful. But it took six years to get from the designer's sketchbook to a dealership. So in the early 80s, when that model was really just a couple of years old, they were already feeling out of date. In the 1980s, for a lot of the 1980s, fuel economy was king. That's Todd Zercher. He wrote the book on Bronco. And so if you just had this big Bronco with this big V8 that you might get 12 or 14 miles to the gallon, that wasn't going to cut it. At least not with people who wanted to drive it back and forth to work. You needed a smaller one to go along with it that you might get, you know, 23 miles to the gallon on the highway or something like that. So that's what Ford built, a new small SUV. The new vehicle didn't share the design or platform of the Bronco, but it was given its name. It's the call of the wild, and Ford answers with Bronco 2. So the Bronco 2 came out in uh, 1984, and the main idea behind it was sort of this emerging trend away from big vehicles. That's Joey Caparella with Car and Driver. And Bronco 2 is just the right size for easy maneuvering in tight places. The main big Bronco was based on the F-150 pickup, which was a pretty big vehicle. It had a V8 engine. It wasn't very fuel efficient. See the Ford Bronco 2. It's a brand new kick. The Bronco 2 story is mixed. So I asked Joey to give me the view from outside of Ford. A lot of the foreign automakers had made big inroads with smaller, more fuel efficient vehicles. And the Bronco 2, it was sort of this trend towards, hey, People like 4x4 off-road SUVs, but maybe we can offer this same type of vehicle in a smaller size. The marketing pitch at the time was kind of, are you tired of the Bronco being so big and expensive and thirsty? Here's a smaller, cheaper, lighter Bronco that's just as fun and just as cool. Smaller, cheaper, lighter, yes. Just as cool? Eh, not so much. You know, it just didn't look that cool on the road. It's a little bit, I mean, it's tall and kind of stubby and a little bit awkward, I think, in terms of the proportions. If you look at the Cherokee and the S10 Blazer, and they're just a little less dorky than the Bronco 2. Um, and the Bronco 2, even compared to those other small 4x4s, was smaller. It was a real gamble for Ford. Bronco's brand identity was strong, rugged, and adventurous. The Bronco 2 was built to be nimble, efficient, and practical. It sort of uh, doesn't quite fit the tone of the Bronco because you think of it as being a very brash, kind of all-American. It was revered at the time for being so kind of unapologetically big and boisterous and kind of had this like rowdy character almost. The strategy worked at least initially. For some, smaller was better. So um, this article I'm looking at is from Car and Driver. 
uh, February 1983. So the Bronco 2 was just coming out. And the headline for this article is, it punches a smaller hole in the underbrush. And so we're kind of talking about this idea that, oh, actually, these small utility vehicles are even better for off-roading because you don't get stuck as easily. It refers to the big Broncos. Their fat bulk all too often gets wedged into gullies and between trees. I think people were almost starting to get nostalgic for that original 60s Bronco. Then, in the late 80s, small SUVs started to get a bad name. I found actually a few different types of data about this. Basically, it seemed like the consensus was that there were a higher proportion of rollover accidents with the Bronco 2 than there were with similar vehicles. There were competing studies about what the real cause of those rollovers was. There were a host of theories and allegations. Some claimed the Bronco 2 rolled over more than other vehicles. Some claimed there were design problems. Others had theories that the drivers were inexperienced with that type of vehicle. They might not have experienced a taller pickup truck-based vehicle like this. You know, a young, inexperienced driver getting behind the wheel of a Bronco 2 might not understand that the center of gravity is a lot higher. So the handling characteristics are really different. Questions about the safety of the Bronco 2 were put to the test when lawyers suing Ford asked the federal government to investigate. The government's investigation didn't find the Bronco 2 had a higher rollover rate than other light trucks and vans and didn't determine there was a defect. Well, I do think that the Bronco 2 is looked back on with some amount of disdain. It created different associations. It definitely did attract a lot of negative attention. Regardless of the reason, the Bronco 2 name would not recover and production was halted. They kept making the original Bronco, just not as many. From 1990 to 1991, sales cratered, falling by more than half, from 54,000 to just 25,000. For many, it appeared the end was in sight. Throughout this series, I've been trying to connect the dots between what was happening with the Bronco and what was happening in the city of Detroit. You see, when the Bronco was being dreamt up in the early 60s, Detroit was booming. But in the 80s, when fuel economy and safety issues were eating away at the Bronco brand, well, Detroit was struggling too. Mortgage rates were pushing 17%. Unemployment was skyrocketing. And then... And I know this is more symbolic than impactful. The last train pulled out of Detroit's legendary Michigan train station. If you've ever driven through the city of Detroit and passed through the neighborhood known as Corktown, you see this station. It's impossible not to. It is a glorious 15-story building that lords over a whole section of the city opens in 1913. It wins architectural awards for its grandeur and its glory. That's Bailey Sasoy Moore, my Detroit guide. It's one of the biggest train stations in the country when it's completed. It's one of the busiest in the world. But in 1988, it's shut down for good. Now, the decline of train travel wasn't a really shocking development. But that building, 
was a symbol of Detroit's place in the world. When it closed, the building became a symbol of something else, the city's failure to maintain its past greatness. You know, for a while, there was this whole trend of ruin porn. People coming from all over the world to take photos of the ruins, and nothing got Detroiters more angry. Because to us, it was, don't take a picture of our faded glory. Go take a picture of what we're doing now. The closing of the train station was a big story in Detroit, but not so much on the national scene. The Bronco, however, well, its fall from grace was definitely national news. In fact, it was one of the most watched TV events in our collective history. Of course, we didn't know that at the time. In fact, for many, it was just a regular day. It's a Friday afternoon, about a quarter after four. I was heading home to Santa Monica from Torrance on the 405. That's Jim. He's just leaving work. I got to LAX, uh, which is a part of the road that gets really wide. Traffic in Los Angeles can be bad, but today he's making good time. And I came around the corner uh, of the freeway uh, to where you go under LAX, uh, where the planes are all landing. And um, the highway was completely closed and they had stopped all traffic. And I'd never seen that uh, after living in Los Angeles for more than a decade. Uh, we all had to pull off to the shoulder. There's no indication why. Just a bunch of California Highway Patrol officers waving cars to the shoulder. And then you get out of your car because you can't go anywhere. And um, there were CHP officers all up and down the highway, so you couldn't drive anywhere. <laughs> it was it was really bizarre. Uh, you could look for a mile ahead, and there was no one on the highway. It was completely empty. Then all of a sudden, we started to see all these helicopters above the 405 around Long Beach and Torrance. And we were watching them, and there must have been, I don't know, five or ten helicopters. And they were following something. And... Um, we were saying it must be the president of the United States. By now, hundreds of cars have been pulled off the highway. The drivers are expecting to see, you know, a presidential limo. And this Bronco goes by, and then all the CHP cars go by, and we're all looking at each other saying, who is in that Bronco? But this is June 17th, 1994. And that white Ford Bronco is the focus of the most watched car chase in American history. Lightning fast and bizarre developments tonight in the O.J. Simpson story. We're seeing live pictures right now. The football hero believed to be a passenger in that Ford Bronco that drove around the freeway system in the Los Angeles. But Jim and everyone else at the side of the road still has no idea. We got in our cars about 15 minutes later when they opened up the highway and we were stuck in a huge traffic jam. Finally got home and in Santa Monica and, and saw the whole chase. This was a massive cultural moment. 93 million people, a third of the whole country, watched it live on television. Decades later, people still remember the slow white Bronco. But a guy that was right there at the side of the highway, who was closer to it than any of us, he had no clue what he was seeing. There are two other things Jim didn't know in 1994. One, that two years later, almost to the day, Ford would end production of the Bronco. And two, now this one is kind of crazy, that he would one day become the CEO of Ford Motor Company, and he would leave the team assigned to bring back Bronco. 
some things only make sense with a little bit of hindsight. This is such a key moment for the Bronco. It's really the most important part of our investigation into why Ford killed it. So I want to look at it from a whole bunch of perspectives. What Jim was describing is how it looked from the side of the road, but you probably didn't see it that way. You probably watched it on television. The NBA finals were on, but that got interrupted with a special news bulletin. He was said to be in the Bronco holding a gun to his head. The driver reported to be his friend, former Bills teammate Al Collings. Days before, Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ron Goldman were found murdered. Simpson on the lam since the LAPD announced today that he was charged in the murders of his ex-wife and another man. He was told to turn himself in, but he didn't. Instead, he wrote what sounded like a suicide note and took off down the highway with his former teammate driving. That's the police chase that millions of people watched live. You see some of the chase in progress. It lasted almost an hour. Lots of questions still swirling around the case, but still no comment on reports that a bloody ski mask and glove were found on Simpson's estate. How big was that chase? Well, Nielsen, the ratings company, they did a survey of the most impactful television moments of the last 50 years. The terrorist attacks of September 11th topped the list, obviously. The 1986 Space Shuttle Challenger disaster, that's fourth. And the slow white Bronco, number six. But why am I revisiting this after 25 years? Well, because of the massive impact it had on this brand. That one drive transformed it from the beloved off-road explorer into the most notorious vehicle on the road. In fact, a lot of people point to this very moment as the reason Ford terminated the product. Can you tell me what it means to the car company when one of the most iconic moments of the century Mm -hmm. was that white Bronco? If you say white Bronco to anybody of our generation or older, they're like, oh yeah, OJ, LA, 94. It's one of those things that becomes such a iconic American moment. Bailey Sasoy Moore. It's been called the car chase of the century. It's been referred to as the most iconic car in the last century of American car design because of that car chase. And it's straight out of Hollywood casting that it's a big white car. If you were looking at that film and it had been like a blue Continental, it wouldn't have looked as good. Something about that pristine white car with two like good looking, big African-American men singing against gray interiors on that barren LA expressway being followed by those, God bless them, Crown Vic LA police cars. Even with all we think that we know about that day, We still need to get context about Ford, the Bronco, Detroit, and really all of America. And it also helps to get our brains back into 1994 mode. Most people don't watch TV live anymore. They're watching a Netflix or a streaming service. So the idea that anything could cut in and interrupt programming is really a thing of the past. If we heard today, we would all hop on our phones, go to Twitter, go to YouTube, maybe hop onto one of the news affiliates, and we'd watch the video. But in 1994, that was not an option. So instead, a third of the country was watching the same thing at the same time. But of course, they didn't all see it the same way. 
in Detroit, the over-predominant feeling was drawn across race lines. The white suburbs thought, get him. How dare he? He killed his ex-wife. He killed his ex-wife's friend. And then you've got the predominantly African-American city saying, we're with you, saying we and, love you. And, and by the way, just the, the preamble to that is what people need to know is that the OJ chase comes right after the wake of the Los Angeles uprising or the Los Angeles riots. And now we've got playing out mostly white police officers chasing a African-American sports star. America's conversation about race is constantly evolving. And a lot of what's happening today is rooted in the same issues that made the chase and trial a huge part of the national conversation back in 1994. And it's why it's still talked about today. For our purposes, though, I want to drill in on one detail of the story that always gets mixed up. Whose Bronco was it anyway? You see, there were actually two white Broncos. One was being held by the police as evidence in the murder investigation, and the other, the one in the chase, belonged to his best friend, Al Cowings. You know what I think is a funny little sub about that is they're such good friends. They had matching Broncos. They had matching Broncos! The white with the gray interior, yeah. The V8 version, which could apparently outrun the police for 90 minutes. That shows you something about the popularity of the vehicle then. That's so if you got your, you got OJ Simpson and his homeboy are rolling around in twin Broncos. That shows you what the brand is like. When we remove the affiliation now to OJ, which is, he has obviously negative connotations, but in 1994, he's a hero. He's a hero. Is gold standard, yeah. and that's what the that's what that dude. I is. think part of the O.J. Simpson Bronco story is it was a car most Americans could afford. O.J. was in like a Detroit-made, American-made, every man's car. It sort of endeared him to people, but not for everyone. I remember. I think it was a Friday night. I was at home with my family watching the news, and I think the whole nation was riveted to it. That's Jeff Trapp again. He's the guy that founded Bronco Graveyard. That means he's a fan. But it also means that he makes his living off the popularity of the brand. So I wanted to know what he remembers about the night an all-American celebrity turned into a fugitive. Yeah, he was a hero. He was uh, Americans, you know, they loved him. From the Hertz commercials, going to the airport, football announcer, movies. He was a well-liked guy, and just to have that happen, it was just uh, tragic. When Jeff says it was tragic, it's not clear if he's talking about the murders, the football stars' fall from grace, or the damage being done to Broncos' image. Because it had the perception of it, you know, being like the getaway car for a murderer. For me, it did tarnish it in my eyes, but I knew the truck was a, you know, capable off-road vehicle, utility vehicle. People who bought them really loved them and uh, got a, you know, got a lot of good use out of them. Ask any hardcore Bronco fan about the chase, and then that's exactly the way it goes. They say, yeah, I saw it, and then that's it. As if not talking about it will make it go away. I was pretty young back then, but I do remember uh, I did see the trial. And I remember we actually turned it on in our high school lunch cafeteria and watched it and saw the verdict of him uh, coming back as not guilty. And 
That's my main memory of it. And the fact that he kind of ruined Broncos. Jerk. (laughs) That's Courtney Barber, a big Bronco fan. How big of a fan is she? She drove her Bronco from South Carolina to the Arctic Circle. So you can imagine any slight to the image, she takes it personally. You mentioned a Bronco, and that's the first thing people talk about. I mean, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. You know, he needed to drive something. It just stinks that that's become the main focus. Like, the minute someone brings up a Bronco, oh, what are you, you're going to run away from people? You're going to do this? And it's just like, oh, there's so much more to a Bronco. As we are wrapping up our interview with Courtney, she asked a question off mic. What happened to that Bronco? It was famous for a couple hours, but then it just disappeared. So I'm going to go hunting for that notorious truck. I'm also going to take you inside where I was on that evening in 1994. Then I'll sit down with the man that headed Ford's PR department when all of this went down to finally answer the question, what killed the Bronco? Well, you, 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 you're coming from it, if I may be so bold to say, a little from the wrong side. That's next time on Bring Back Bronco, Chapter 4, End of the Road. I'm Sinari Glenton. Be sure to subscribe to Bring Back Bronco on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. O.J. Simpson is depicted as a part of a news event. He did not participate in this podcast and does not endorse or have any affiliation with Ford or this podcast.